0: If you would please turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. As we continue in the book of Genesis this morning, we'll be in Genesis 2 beginning in verse 18. And we'll read down to the end of the chapter. Genesis 2 beginning in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. So the Lord God caused the deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man for this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed now as we consider this passage this morning about the creation of the woman and the institution of marriage first of all we'll look at the history of the fact that is laid out for us in these verses and then We'll look at the implications that arise from this history. And since the the history itself is reasonably straightforward, we'll spend the bulk of our time looking at the implications. But first, let's look at the the history that is given for us here. Verse 18 should grab our attention. After reading the pronouncements of, of Genesis 1 again and again that the Lord's creation was good, we read here of the first thing of which the Lord says... It is not good. What we find is that it was not good for the man to be alone. Adam, of course, at this time was the only human being. And we need to remember that at this point, Adam still has unbroken fellowship with God. He has dominion over all of the living creatures in a way that was not hampered by sin. But yet, even with those good things still present and undisturbed, it was not good for him To be alone. This tells us something about the nature of man. Calvin was echoing Aristotle when he said that this involves a general principle that man was formed to be a social animal. There was something incomplete, something lacking with Adam being alone. In verse 19 we see one of, if not the very first task which Adam performed, and that of naming the animals. The Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky, and he brought them to Adam to see what Adam would name them. Adam was calling the shots in this. Whatever Adam called a creature, that was its name. This was Adam exercising dominion. His God-given dominion and right over creation. And in doing so, according to verse 20, he gave names to all the cattle and the birds of the air, beasts of the field, He saw what was out there because the Lord brought them to him and then Adam gave them their names. And in this first survey of the animal kingdom, one thing became abundantly clear. Namely, that among them all, there was no suitable helper for Adam to be found. Suitable helper was not out there. The other animals were great. God saw that they were very good, but still there was, as of yet, no suitable helper for Adam. And... You know the history. The Lord God here makes a helper for the man. Adam falls into a deep sleep. The Lord takes out a rib and closes that place up with flesh. And then from the rib, he fashions a woman. And he brings the woman to the man, as we see in verse 23. Adam exclaims, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Swiss reformer Johannes O'Glampadius said of this, by that miracle, God wanted to commend to us the highest love and friendship which the married ought to preserve between them and finally to teach each one to acknowledge one's spouse as one's own flesh. The woman was formed from the man and formed for the man. We should see here that even though The Lord's creative work was was active in the creation of both Adam and Eve in a way that was unique and never repeated in history. Nevertheless, Adam and Eve were not created in the same way. Adam was formed from the dust of the ground. The Lord breathed into him the breath of life and he became a living soul. But the formation of the woman was not done in the same way. As Adam rightly perceived, she was taken out of Man. In other words, God did not, as it were, start from scratch in the creation of Eve. He didn't start simply with the dust of the earth. He started with the man whom he had made. He began with Adam. He used a physical part of the man to make the woman. In this way, she was, as Adam says, bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. And then in what follows in verse 24, we have an explanation of how this event becomes a paradigm for All future marriages, future husbands and wives are joined together in marriage. The two become one flesh, even as Adam and Eve were one flesh. The union is physical, but it is not merely physical. As someone expressed it, the union between them is so close as if they were but one person, one soul, one body. And then, as the text indicates, this marriage relationship becomes primary. That is to say, a new family unit Is formed One in which the husband and the wife leave behind their former families. We heard this a little bit in Psalm 45 that we sang this morning, didn't we? We heard about the the princess coming to, to be married and forgetting her father's house. Hence, we read here in the text, "...for this reason a man should leave his father and his mother." The husband separates from his parents, as does the wife from hers, and their relationship with one another now becomes primary. Now, certainly men and women who marry still owe to their parents honor and respect, but their relationship to their parents becomes different from what it once was. The closest tie is not now with mother or father or any other family member, but with their spouse with whom they become one flesh. Now, depending on circumstances, some married couples perhaps may need to reside in the same dwelling place as the parents of either uh, the bride or the groom. It's worth noting, I think, that even the uh, the patriarchs, the sons of, of Jacob, were still connected with their father's household, maybe not living in the exact same tent, but nevertheless were connected with their father's household even after they became adults, after they had married and had children. But with that said, even in circumstances where a married couple does reside for a time with one set of parents or the other, is important for all parties concerned to understand the fundamental shift that has now taken place in terms of the marriage of the two people. The first priority of the husband on a purely human level is that of his wife. The first priority of the wife on a purely human level is that of her husband. And then chapter 2 is rounded off for us in verse 25, in which we have a picture of the innocence of our first parents, They were there in the garden created for them by God. They were sinless. Their consciences were pure and unspotted. They enjoyed fellowship with God. They enjoyed intimacy with each other. Adam and Eve in that condition had no more shame than a baby does when a baby comes out of the womb naked. They were not ashamed to be with one another without clothing. They needed nothing to keep them warm. Nothing to shield them from the sun or from the wind or rain. Nothing that they needed to hide from one another. There was mutual love and harmony between them. All was at peace and all was good for the time being. And so what we see here in these verses is the history of the creation of woman and of the institution of marriage. Again, as I said, it's, it's pretty straightforward. Now let's try to work out the implications of this, and we'll, we'll speak to these under three main headings. First, uh, we'll look at implications from the order of creation. Second, we'll look at implications for the institution of marriage broadly. Then, thirdly, implications for our union with Christ. And so, if you want to, for those who take notes, you could say point number one, order of creation. Point number two, the institution of marriage. Point number three, union with Christ. Order of creation, institution of marriage union with Christ. And so first the implications from the order of creation. That is the the order in which God created Adam and Eve. Adam was created first, Eve was created second. And though we might not think there's much to this, nevertheless this is not the way the Bible unfolds this for us. And so as Paul Explains it in 1 Corinthians 11.3. He says, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. And so the order of creation speaks to the headship of men, particularly in the home and in the church. And so Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 11.8 and 9 that man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. That's, that's clear enough, given the, the text of, of Genesis chapter 2. Charles Hodge helpfully pointed out that in this way does the New Testament constantly authenticate, not merely the moral and religious truths of the Old Testament, but its historical facts. In other words, as Paul is teaching on the the issue of men and women in 1 Corinthians 11, he looks back to Genesis 2 and looks at the, the facts of the case. What facts, historical facts, does Moses affirm and communicate to us? Well, he communicates to us that Adam was created first, Eve was created second. And Paul takes that as historical fact. And so, man was not created... For the sake of the woman, but the woman was created for the man's sake. But, lest anyone draw the wrong conclusion about this, Paul goes on to say, 1 Corinthians 11, verses 11 and 12, However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman. And all things originate from God. And so even though there's an an order in creation, and this order has implications for for headship, nevertheless, men and women are not independent of one another. We are rather interdependent on each other. There's no need for for animosity or bitterness or pride or embattlement between the sexes, male and female. And so this creation order then has implications for the home and in the church. In regard to the, the home, we have passages like Ephesians 5, 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6, uh, Colossians 3, 18 and 19, I think, is a helpful, succinct summary. And so we find there wives be subject to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and do not be embittered against them. Man is the head of woman, the husband is the head of the wife. This is the, the order which the Lord has established for the home. And in regard to the church, we find Paul's instructions to women in first Timothy two, eleven and twelve, where he says a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man but to remain quiet. And then Paul grounds the roles of men and women in the church not on his personal preference not on historical circumstances or cultural circumstances but on the creation order itself in the very next verse First Timothy 2.13 when he says For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. Whether we... Like it or not, the inspired apostle grounds in part the prohibition of women teaching or exercising authority over men on this order of creation. For Adam was created first, and then Eve. The point is that there are implications in regard to the order of creation, which the scriptures make explicit. And we do well to pay attention to them. Because we live in an age where... Men and women are not merely viewed as interchangeable with one another in terms of function, but in which it is thought that men can become women and women can become men. A look at general revelation of creation itself and a look at the special revelation of God in the the creation account shows that this is not the case. Though we are all equally made in the image of God, men and women are not the same. we are equally made in the image of God, we were not designed to be the same. From the beginning, God made them male and female. We cannot simply view one another as if we are the same and are intended to be completely interchangeable across the board. This This is not God's design. So there are implications from the order of creation. Now let's Move ahead and look then at the implications for the institution of marriage more broadly. And we'll spend spend more time here. We see in these verses what the Lord intended marriage to be. Marriage is a holy and divine institution. It's an institution that was ordained by God himself. He blessed it and willed that the husband and wife should live together in peace and harmony Inseparably, it is the union of one man and one woman covenanting and consenting together to be husband and wife for life. As instituted by the Lord, there was one man, Adam, joined to one woman, Eve. As ordained by God, the institution was not a homosexual institution. When Adam needed a helper, he made not another man but a woman to be Adam's helper. Nor was the institution polygamous. When the Lord saw that there was no suitable helper to be found for Adam, he did not say, well, Adam surely needs a lot of help, so I'll make two or three women to be a helper, to be helpers for him, helpers in the plural, and unite them together. He didn't do that. He made one woman for the one man, and this is important in that the two become one flesh. And we see this in in Jesus' references, when Jesus points back to the the Genesis account uh, that we read there in Matthew 19, uh, Jesus says, the two shall become one flesh. Paul speaks the same way in Ephesians 5. Marriage is the two becoming one, not three or four or however many becoming one. And so the institution as ordained is neither homosexual nor polygamous, and that institution was intended to be continued on without cessation. This was the implication which our Lord drew from the Genesis account there in that passage that our brother Stan read for us in Matthew 19. So the scene was the the Pharisees came to Jesus and asked whether it was lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all. And uh, at the time among the first century Jews there were a couple of schools of thought on this issue we might call the one, a more restrictive school of thought, and the other, a more permissive school of thought. The, uh, the Mishnah, which was the, uh, the first main written collection of the Jewish oral tradition, gives the two positions this way. The school of Shammai say, A man may not divorce his wife unless he has found unchastity in her, for it is written, and referring to Deuteronomy 24, because he has found indecency in anything. And the school of Hillel say, he may divorce her even if she spoiled a dish for him, for it is written, because he has found indecency in her in anything. Rabbi Akiba says, even if he found another fairer than she, for it is written, and it shall be if she finds no favor in his eyes. Now, All sides in this were appealing to the law of divorce in Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 and following. One school of thought thought that the emphasis was to be found on the word indecency, and so they tried to limit divorce to to the issue of immorality. The other school placed the emphasis on the word anything. If he finds indecency in anything, then he is free. And in the rabbinical interpretation of that school, that included uh, something so little as a burned supper. And then there was that one rabbi, Rabbi Akiba, who placed the emphasis on that part of Deuteronomy 24 where it says, if she finds no favor in his eyes. And according to Rabbi Akiba, that meant if he finds someone more attractive than his wife, he can divorce her and move right along. One historian of the ancient Jews said the divorce was relatively easy in those days, and the Pharisees and rabbis intended to keep it so. Clearly, this was not what our Lord thought. Jesus turns their attention when they come to him asking about this. He turns their attention away from Deuteronomy 24 back to our text in Genesis 2. Back to creation itself. He says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And then Jesus draws out the implication from that. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And the example of Jesus in Matthew 19 is helpful for us because we live in a time where there's obviously great upheaval in regard to this institution of marriage. What is it? How should it be defined? Under what circumstances is divorce permissible? And Jesus points us back to the Genesis narrative to show us what marriage is, how we should think about it, and how we should conduct ourselves in regard to that institution. And that's the very thing that we're trying to do this morning, right? We're trying to look back to, to Genesis 2 to inform us as to how we ought to think and conduct ourselves in regard to the institution of marriage. The norm is that one man and one woman unite together, consent together together for life, that what God has joined together, no man is to separate. Now, certainly the scriptures do give exceptions to the rule in which a divorce can be pursued. Those cases which the Bible explicitly permits divorce under are adultery or desertion by an unbelieving spouse, but those are exceptions to the rule. The rule, according to Jesus, is what therefore God has joined together, that no man separate. And that being the case, and given that the writer to the Hebrews says that marriage is to be held in honor among all, in the marriage bed undefiled, Hebrews 13.4, let's consider then how we, how we ought to respond on a personal and practical level in regard to what we find here in Genesis 2. And so, for starters, we don't want to be uh, hoodwinked by our culture, or for that matter, by our government about what marriage is in our recent history of less than a couple of months ago, uh, the 117th Congress passed the so-called Respect for Marriage Act, which was signed into law by the President. Uh, that act of Congress, suffice it to say, does not respect marriage. And we as Christians cannot look to that ruling as helpful. Rather, we look to the Word of God to define what marriage is and to inform our thinking about marriage. The way to rightly respect marriage is to rightly understand what it is according to the word of God and then to live rightly in light of that reality, to preserve and respect marriage as given by God. So we don't want to be hoodwinked by the culture or by the government. And then according to our position in life, and I recognize that in a room like this we've got people in all kinds of positions, we want to think about what we can do to preserve and actually respect marriage in a biblical way. Now let me start by speaking to those of you who are single and eligible to be married. For those of you in this situation, the best way to respect and preserve marriage even before yours begins is by growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ and developing godly habits even now. You want to make sure that you're growing into the kind of person who is quick to forgive, who is slow to be angry. In marriage, there are things that will happen to you that, if you let them, can make you angry. In marriage, there are things that will happen to you in which case you will need to be forgiving. You want to be making sure that you are exercising self-control be making sure that you're the kind of person who guards your eyes and guards your heart, that you're the kind of person who seeks to avoid lust, because lust is the activity of the heart that leads to the action of adultery. You want, by God's grace, to be continually growing into the kind of person who will be a good spouse. You don't want to put off your sanctification until marriage. You'll need lots of sanctification from your wedding day forward should God in His grace one day grant you a spouse. And so you need to be be working on your sanctification right now, growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ right now. Obviously, you want to grow after your wedding day too, but you need to be growing leading up to that day. Another way to preserve your marriage before it starts is by making sure that the kind of spouse you're seeking, if you're seeking a spouse, is godly. Now, Obviously, you want to be realistic in the expectations that you have. The angels of heaven do not marry, nor are they given in marriage. But at the same time, you also don't want to be looking for a project to be working on in your marriage. You don't want to go into marriage looking to change someone. Odds are you'll be disappointed in the end if you do. J.C. Ryle, when he was young and single, said that there were three characteristics in uh, a woman that he was looking for as a potential wife. He said that she'd be a real Christian, a real lady, not a fool. And I would say those qualities are well worth your keeping in mind. Someone else put it this way as, as he was a young man and was thinking uh, about marriage. He said, I shall always endeavor to make choice of such a woman for my spouse who has first made choice of Christ as a spouse for herself. That none may be one flesh with me who is not made one spirit with Christ my Savior. For I look upon the image of Christ as the best mark of beauty I can behold in her, and the grace of God as the best portion I can receive with her. If it ever be my lot to enter into that state, I beg of God that he would direct me in the choice of such a wife only to lie in my bosom here, as may afterwards be admitted to rest in Abraham's bosom to all eternity, such a one, as will so live, pray, and converse with me upon earth that we may be entitled to sing, rejoice, and be blessed together forever in heaven. And so you need to be thinking along those lines. If you're single, eligible to be married, and thinking about getting a spouse, you need to be thinking in those lines. Godliness needs to be the number one priority. Now, how do you preserve and respect marriage if you're already married? Now, I'm sure there's a lot that could be said, and I'm sure there's a lot that I won't say uh, this morning. But I would uh, draw your attention to that implication that Jesus drew from Matthew, uh, from, uh, from Genesis 2.24, when he says, "...so they are no longer two, but one flesh." And the implication that Jesus drew out of that, as we've said is that what, therefore, God has joined together, let no man separate. And so, if you're married, that is the reality of your situation, that you and your spouse are no longer two, but one flesh. And Jesus says, what God has joined together, namely, you and your spouse, let no man put asunder. You freely took vows and entered into covenant covenant with your spouse, but at a deeper level, it was God who joined you to your spouse. That being the case, no man or no woman is to split those whom God has joined together. We find Malachi 2, the very strong words of the Lord, where he says, For I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. And him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you deal not treacherously. All of us who are married, all of us who are married, need to take that as a starting point. That God has joined us together that we're not to put asunder, we're not to deal treacherously. So what does that mean? It means that we remember our vows. We made promises on our wedding day and those promises are still valid and binding. The Lord tells us to take heed to ourselves that we deal not treacherously. And In order to do that, we need to watch our eyes, we need to watch our hearts, we need to be careful in our relationships with members of the opposite sex. Bad stuff can happen in a marriage, and bad stuff can start in seemingly small ways. It's been said, and I wholeheartedly concur, that once you're married, the main goal is not to be happy, but to stay married. And I realize that's not that's not terribly sentimental, but that's where we need to start. Now, obviously, being happy and staying married are not mutually exclusive. I'm not trying to suggest that at all, but you understand the point. Sometimes people will come along and say, "Well, God wants me to be happy, and so that means that," and they'll draw some very ungodly, very unbiblical conclusions from that. God wants you to be joyful, but He wants you to be joyful as you obey Him, and not by Seeking to disobey him, not by seeking your joy and happiness and contentment, by disobeying him. And and so once we have that in place, then we can start to dig a little bit and get into the weeds, so to speak. We can can get into the particulars. One way that we can preserve marriage is by putting into practice the, the words of Song of Songs 2.15, which says, Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that are ruining the vineyards, while our vineyards are in blossom. The picture that's painted there in Song of Songs 215 is that there are these, these little foxes running around and, and wreaking havoc inside the vineyard. In other words, that there are these, these little things that are, that are popping up and that are spoiling the love in this union. You have to catch those foxes. You have to restrain them. You have to prevent them from ruining the vineyard. And even when you may be tempted to think that the vineyard is ruined and that you have reached the point of no return, even then you need to put the brakes on lest your mind run wild and you reach, again, those, those illegitimate and ungodly conclusions. You need to remember that the two of you have become one. The two are one flesh. And as Paul exhorts husbands in Ephesians five twenty eight and 29, he says, "...so husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies." He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Husbands are to love their wives, they're to nourish them, and cherish them, and care for them, just as they care for their own bodies. Because the husband and wife now are no longer two, but one. They've become one flesh. And as husbands do that, sacrificially loving and caring for their wives, wives are to see that they respect their husbands, as Paul says in Ephesians 5.33. And so this is how we're to respect marriage. This is how we're to preserve marriage. But what do we do about when things don't go quite so smoothly? What about when there are problems that arise, problems that look more sinister than foxes in a vineyard? Well, some things can be worked through by talking things out or being willing to to listen humbly to one another. And where there's a real problem, being willing to genuinely confess the sin, the fault, and repent of it, turn away from it, and demonstrate that repentance by genuine fruits of repentance. Sometimes, however, there are circumstances where maybe someone from the outside needs to be involved. Sometimes outside counsel, outside mediation, can be helpful, sometimes perhaps necessary. If you're having problems in your marriage and you need some outside help, you can talk to one of the elders, you can talk to all of us together. Not that we have all the answers, not that we can fix anything or everything. We make no such claim. On the contrary, we acknowledge that we can't absolutely make anybody do anything. We can offer counsel, give biblical guidance based on the scriptures, but we can't make... Anyone do anything. We're here to shepherd and to nourish and care for your souls. And likewise, you can talk to other believers within the body of Christ and get some counsel and get some outside perspective on things. And sometimes that can be so helpful because sometimes we might be so close to the problem ourselves and so invested in it that we can't actually see and understand everything that is, that is going on. can't see the way out of it. It's okay to to reach out for help. Living for Christ is not meant to be done alone. We're supposed to be helping each other within the body of Christ. And part of this includes respecting marriage enough to help preserve the marriages of the people that we know. To be willing to, to come alongside people, offer them counsel and help, and to be humble enough ourselves to reach out for such help when we need it. And if I could just just draw two particular pastoral applications from Scripture for husbands and wives, I would want to exhort husbands in regard to 1 Peter 3.7. Husbands, live in an understanding way with your wives. Husbands, be patient, be gentle, and also lead them. Step up to the plate and lead your wife in a gentle and understanding way. And for wives... I will go to Ephesians 5.33. The wife must see that she respects her husband. No husband other than the Lord Jesus Christ is perfect. All husbands have flaws. Wives get to see those flaws up front and personal. Paul knew that when he wrote Ephesians 5.33. Nevertheless, he says, the wife must see that she respects her husband. And this brings us then to the third implication in regard to our union with Christ as the storyline of scripture unfolds, we understand that marriage is not simply something that was instituted by God for the good of human society. It certainly was, but marriage ultimately points to a greater reality, which is the relationship that exists between God and his people, between Christ and the church. And we, we even see this in, in the Old Testament. We see uh, idolatry, idolatry, the running away of the nation of Israel after the idols of the nations, referred to as adultery, as going whoring after these idols. The the, the, uh, the idolatry is referred to as as immorality. Likewise, we see in uh, in a passage uh, or like the the book of Hosea, we see how the Lord is is a husband to to the nation of Israel in the same way that Hosea was husband to Gomer. Gomer was running away, being sinful. Yet Hosea was there as the steadfast husband. This is the Lord's relationship with his people and the New Testament is even more explicit along those lines. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul draws on this language of the two becoming one flesh to show why Christians are not to be immoral with prostitutes. And so he says, 1 Corinthians six fifteen and 16, do you not know... That your bodies are members of Christ. Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that he who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. And so you see that Paul the argument that Paul is making there in First Corinthians six. If you're a Christian, then your body is a member of Christ. You are in Christ. Christ is in you. It is completely out of order, completely evil, completely upside down to imagine that it would be okay to take that body that is a member of Christ and become one body with a prostitute. But then in the very next verse, Paul goes on to say something quite interesting. 1 Corinthians 6.17, he says, But the one who has joined himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. The one who has joined himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. With him. That is to say, there is a spiritual union between the believer and the Lord Jesus Christ, which, though not physical, like the marriage union, is nevertheless analogous to the marriage union. One writer explained the union between the believer and Christ this way. He said, this mystical union, which is so abundantly attested in Scripture, with no absorption of our spirit into Christ no mingling or fusion of the two with no loss of the identity of either. Our spirit is joined to Christ's so that one thought, one desire, one will animate and control both. Namely, his thought, desire, and will animate and control both. Namely, his thought, his desire, his will. And thus we're, we're joined with Christ. And so Christ's thoughts, Christ's desire, Christ's will now animate us as believers, as those who are united to him. We become one spirit with the Lord. This is true on an individual level with us as individual Christians. We join ourselves to the Lord through faith. And this is also true on the corporate level for the church, as we find in Ephesians 5. As Paul is giving the instructions there in Ephesians 5, he uses that language of body. He says, husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Now, as he's speaking in that way in Ephesians 5, he's working up to making a couple of connections. The obvious physical connection is the quotation of Genesis 2.24, which he quotes in Ephesians 5.31. Since the husband and wife united together become one flesh, there is a very real sense in which the husband loving his wife is Loving himself because she is a part of him. They are one flesh. Husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. As a general rule, we have a tendency to care for our own bodies. And that means that to a greater or lesser degree, we take care of our bodies. The vast majority of us nourish and cherish our own bodies. And then Paul makes the the Christ-Church connection using that language of body. After he had already stated that people have a bias toward taking care of their own bodies, he goes on to say that our Lord Jesus Christ also takes care of His body, which is the church. After stating in Ephesians 5.30 that we are members of His body, then Paul quotes Genesis 2.24 and verse 31, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Obviously, as we've seen here from Genesis, that has reference to the physical realm, the marriage relationship between a man and his wife, man and wife becoming one flesh. But the marriage relationship points us to something even deeper, which is Christ's relationship with the church. And so he says in Ephesians 5.32, This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. The mystery is the union of Christ with his church, of which human marriage is a type. Human marriage is a a shadow, a, a likeness pointing to our union with Christ. Calvin said the great mystery is that Christ breathes into the church his own life and power. We often use this language about the church being the the body of Christ, and yet we probably don't often think about the full weight and the implications of what it means that the church is the body of Christ. We are Christ's body. We are Christ's bride. We are spiritually joined to Christ, united to him by faith through the working of the Holy Spirit within us. Scripture speaks of believers as being in Christ and of Christ as being in us. And thus human marriage is a picture of this great mystery in that two separate people join and become one flesh. And in like manner, all of us who are believers were once separate from Christ, now through faith are joined to Christ. He is in us, we are in Him. You can see see how the analogy works. And... This is good news for for all people. This is good news for you today if you are a believer in Christ. We can be reminded, even from a passage on marriage in Genesis 2.24, that we are united to such a good and gracious Lord as Jesus Christ. That Jesus has loved us with so great a love that we cannot fully comprehend it. A love which caused him... To become incarnate and to go to the cross and to lay down his life so that he might set you apart for himself and make you part of his people, a living member of his bride, his body, which will one day be presented to him in glory. And on that day it will have been cleansed by him so that it will be without spot or wrinkle or any such thing you have been joined to this gracious Lord. You have been born of a seed which is imperishable, the living and enduring word of God. And so, Christian, today be encouraged by the fact of your union with Christ. Our union is compared to the union of marriage, which is based on a covenant. It's certain and stable. Now, we know that Marriage here in a fallen world involves sinners who sometimes are untrue to their word and sometimes are covenant breakers. When that happens, the institution that is supposed to provide us a picture of Christ and His church is providing a, a false picture. But thanks be to God, the false picture does not under any circumstance alter the reality of Christ's faithfulness to His people. Christ is faithful. Christ is no covenant breaker. And so Christian friend, rest assured that our Lord Jesus is faithful, that our Lord Jesus is true to his word. He who calls you is faithful, and he will preserve you to the end. And this is also good news for you here today, even if you're not a believer. It's good news because all of us who are now joined to Christ were once where you are now. We, at one time, were separate from Christ. But then the Holy Spirit brought the gospel to our hearts, and we recognized Our sin, and we believed this gospel, that the Son of God came into the world for us. That he lived a sinless life and died on the cross and rose again from the dead on the third day. So that he might sanctify and cleanse a bride. So that he might sanctify and cleanse a people for himself. We believed this message, we repented of our sins, and we were joined to Christ. We received the forgiveness of our sins. We received eternal life in Him. And what Jesus Christ has done for us in cleansing us and making us new, He will do for you if you will repent and believe on Him. If you have more questions about what it means to repent and to believe, you can talk to myself or to another Christian whom you know here. We would love to tell you more about that. As we've seen from Genesis 2, the Lord was gracious and kind. Creating a helper for the man in ordaining this institution of marriage. It is a help to us in a world that's now filled with difficulties. It wasn't filled with difficulties then, but it is now. And marriage is a help to us in that. It's a comfort to us in a world that is suffering, that's filled with suffering, and it's also a blessing to us. Though the world is filled with sin, and though all who enter into human marriages now are sinners, nevertheless, there's, there's blessing. There, And so we should praise God for the institution of marriage, and we should also praise God for the greater reality to which human marriages point, namely the Lord Jesus Christ and his great love for his people and our union now with him. Please pray with me. Our Father, we thank you for... Christ and his love for us. We thank you for uh, our great hope of being united with him eternally. We pray that you would strengthen us, that we would live faithfully here, and that we would be preparing ourselves for, for that great day. We pray that your spirit would be working within us, conforming us to the image of Christ creating longing within our hearts to be with him. And Father, we also thank you for the the gift of marriage. We know that marriage can be hard that we ourselves are sinners that all spouses are sinners and we pray that you give us grace that we would uh, that we would live faithfully that we would conduct ourselves according to your word in regard to in regard to marriage. We pray that you would give us grace, we pray that you would strengthen us in Uh, in this regard. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.